Luke chapter 24 would certainly be our desire as a church that anyone visiting us for the first time would understand through the singing and through what has been read in the discussion already here this morning that we have assembled here today to declare that Jesus Christ lives. We have not gathered to merely keep his memory alive. We are not here to prop up a comforting myth. We gather on this first day of the week to announce and to celebrate the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Why do we believe this fundamental truth of the Christian faith? Why do we hold to it so tenaciously? Why do we gather every Lord's Day to announce this truth? We believe it because God's Word declares that Jesus rose from the dead. To the pure rationalist, that's not very satisfying. How do you know God's Word is the truth? God's Word says it. All kinds of books say all kinds of things. How can you believe what this book says? But we would add to that and understand as those who are genuine believers in Christ that secondly, God has supernaturally opened our eyes to see that the Bible is true. Our ability to believe in Christ's resurrection is a gift to us from God. It is a gift attested by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. We will not take time to look at passages of Scripture that indicate that, but even in our own life experience we know this. There is something about the written Word of God that rings true in our hearts, and it rings true in such a way that it can give evidence to nothing less than God's activity in our hearts and minds. The resurrection of Jesus is an objective, demonstrable reality, historically staked in time. Yet it is one God must enable us to see. I've referred in the past to the story of Simon Greenlee, for those that haven't heard that story he was a famous instructor of jurisprudence at Harvard Law School. Greenleaf was a Jewish man who was vocal about his opinion that the biblical record of Jesus' resurrection was a myth. One day a student asked Dr. Greenleaf if he had ever considered all the evidence in drawing the conclusion that Jesus' resurrection was physical, that it was not fictional, the embarrassed professor immediately set out to disprove the resurrection on the force of the evidence found in the four Gospels. We have four witnesses. Ever think of that? It's witnesses to the Gospel. All four of them, four witnesses to the singular truth of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. But Mr. Greenleaf got the evidence together. Four witnesses. He stood before him in a sense. Matthew, come forward. Mark, your turn. Luke, what do you have to say? John, your testimony. And Dr. Greenleaf published his findings in 1874 under the title, The Testimony of the Evangelist Examined by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice. After lengthy investigation of the four gospel accounts, Dr. Greenleaf concluded that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
that he physically defeated death and came then in that evidence, considering that evidence, to realize that Jesus was the Savior. What a great story. The apostolic witnesses proved to him beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus had rose from the dead. But we know that there's something more going on there, don't we? Those of us who have walked with God for some period of time have come to saving faith in Christ. We know what's going on there with Mr. Greenleaf. It's not simply considering the evidence alone. There is a work of God that was going on in his heart. An unbeliever. But God was at work to open Simon's eyes to the truth of Scripture. There is a tremendous source of evidence to Christ's resurrection in these gospel accounts if God will open our eyes to see them. But the evidence is there. It's not belief in a myth. It's not belief in a story. The evidence is clear and real, but it needs to be illumined. And I think we could go beyond or preceding just the four Gospels and know that really the entire Old Testament is given as evidence for the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for His messianic right, and for His resurrection and victory over death. No human being could possibly coordinate the efforts of prophets separated by hundreds of years to perfectly prophesy Christ's death and resurrection. It's humanly impossible. These prophecies are couched in such a way that they will not permit imitation. There's a bit of a hiddenness and a mystery to them so that people couldn't just go out and imitate them. But nonetheless, they're scattered through the centuries through prophets who do not know one another and cannot coordinate efforts. And laying out these prophecies, they come and point us irresistibly to the person of Jesus Christ, to His work, and to His resurrection from the dead. They are demonstrable proof that Jesus lives. But they are also realities that God must enable us to see. It's all there. It's all testable. But God must open our eyes. We find here in Luke 24 one of the most dramatic historical accounts of such a divine enlightening. And I trust that we could see ourselves in the story. Luke chapter 24, it is Sunday. On Friday evening, as grief assaulted the very core of their beings, the followers of Jesus returned to Jerusalem. They just, just outside the city. They come back into the city, and they are left there to rest for 24 hours in obedience to the law. They really have no other option. It is now the Sabbath beginning at sundown on Friday night. They have a 24-hour period to rest, and then sleeping through Saturday night. They get up early on Sunday morning, several women returning to the tomb to find that it is empty. Two angels appear and declare, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. There are two messengers. 
These are angelic messengers. They're no different than human messengers in this sense that they have a message to deliver from God. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. The women hurry away to report this strange message to the other disciples. Two of those disciples leave Jerusalem for their home at the village of Emmaus. They leave apparently soon after the women's report. Despite the evidence, these two disciples remain so lost in the fog of despair that they cannot grasp what has happened. Remember, we read the account from the standpoint of knowing of Jesus' resurrection. They're dealing with this all as it's happening. So the women have come back and said that angels appeared to them and said to them that Jesus had risen from the dead. But they are so yet in the fog of grief Confused, they head home with a lump in the throat that tears cannot dislodge and a hole in the heart that nothing could fill. Their Messiah is dead. That's all they know. Their expectations have been so crushed, their hopes so shattered, that the angel's declaration of Christ's resurrection proved simply incomprehensible, even though Jesus had prepared them with his own prophecies that he would rise from the dead three days after his demise. Luke tells the story of these two disciples, beginning at verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. At verse 13 we read, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That same day, that is this Sunday, chapter 24, verse 1. It's about a two-mile walk uh, in that setting and time as they journey to their home village. They trudge along, talking, verse 14, with each other about everything that had happened. Their grieving minds not grasping the meaning of the tumultuous tragedy and mysterious angelic appearances of the last several days. They're undoubtedly recounting Jesus' betrayal in Gethsemane, his trials before the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. They're undoubtedly discussing his crucifixion and burial, the missing corpse, and even the vision of angels. What could it all possibly mean? As they talked, verse 15, and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. As they journey along, the primary object of their conversation joins them on the road. They see Jesus, but the Greek text indicates that God may have acted upon them in such a way as to temporarily suspend their natural ability to recognize Jesus. Perhaps this has happened to you in a way that is less than miraculous. I remember a horrifying memory, but of uh, transferring to a university, uh, entering a new program there, and a young lady from the institution where I was transferring from transferred to the same university. And at this meeting of new students, we were gaining an orientation, and I'm standing there next to this girl who is proving a little more friendly than is comfortable to me. And I, you know, I talk to her a little bit, and she just keeps kind of at me and being very, you know, like, like she knows me. And uh, I, I saw her and, and just 
was so taken up with what was going on in front of us, I didn't recognize this was the girl that I knew fairly well. It was, it was horrifying to realize how I treated her. I just gave her a, a major cold shoulder because I, I didn't know what she was up to and didn't know who she was. If that can happen to me in a situation like that, somebody you do know, someone you've seen before and talked to before and probably had only been a matter of a short period of time that we had had a conversation before, and here, I, I don't even recognize her. She, I think, had a hair thing going on. You know, she'd changed her, <laughs> one of those things. But I, I was uh, being a pretty dense male. There's no question about it. Maybe it's something like that. These are, they're so taken up with the horror that they're dealing with in their hearts and the situation that's going around. My guess is that most people were fairly invisible to them on that road. There are people going about their business, traveling home, coming back into Jerusalem. They didn't see any of them. They were dealing with a trauma that no one could really describe or understand but the two of them, and they're so taken up in conversation. This man comes and joins along, and maybe Jesus had a hood on. We don't know. Maybe God did just miraculously hide them or shield their eyes from recognizing him at any rate they're walking along with the prime subject of their discussion and don't know it verse 17 he asked them what are you discussing together as you walk along and notice jesus does not say i don't know what you're discussing he just asked them the question to begin the discussion he knows what they're talking about but they stood still, and their faces downcast. It's a, a very interesting addition there. It's so important what they're discussing. The weight of losing Jesus rests so heavily upon them that they stop in their tracks. Somebody's asking a question about what's so heavy on their heart. They want full attention. They're not going to just keep walking. They want to look in his face and tell him what's happened. And they begin to explain one of them named Cleopas asked him, verse 18, Are you only a visitor of Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's a, a use of language that's hard to translate for us, but the basic point is clear. How is it possible? I mean, I, I, where, where have you been? How could any human being walk through Jerusalem and not hear about Jesus Christ? Everybody knew about this account. Everyone was talking about it. Where have you been? How could you possibly not know? Haven't you heard of Jesus? What th of these things? What things? Asked Jesus. Again, he's not saying he doesn't know. He just wants them to express what they know. What things are you talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. A prophet, powerful in word and deed. They say to the inquisitive stranger, in word, that is, he was a powerful teacher of God's truth. Indeed, he raised the dead and healed the sick and cast out demons and stilled the tempest and walked on water and made food. Oh, who are you, visitor, that you don't know of this man? Powerful words, powerful deeds. A man of God like you've never known before. However, Verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. He's gone. 
The great prophet of God was killed on Friday. Then comes the anguished admission of a broken heart, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Evidence is great patience on Jesus' part, doesn't it? He sees their breaking heart, and he just remains incognito for the time. The angelic message notwithstanding, they say, writes one commentator, they had given up hope and were about to come to the conclusion that the entire Jesus episode was a cruel hoax. We were hoping that Jesus would lead us in military victory over pagan Rome. And we were hoping that he would set up his righteous rule as Messiah, as the Old Testament prophets have declared that he would reign with a rod of iron and vindicate Israel and draw his people back to himself. We had so hoped. We thought he was the Redeemer, but we were wrong. He's dead. Middle of verse 21. And what is more, it is the third day since this all took place. In other words, the initial waves of disbelief were giving way to the harsh reality that Jesus was dead. But mixed into their anguished conversation was an element of confusion and wonder. They add this now in their discussion, verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. I mean, we know better. We know he was dead, but there's this discussion about him being alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. In other words, the tomb was empty. There's no evidence that Jesus is alive. We don't have that evidence, and can we really believe it? They seem to be just saying no. How could we believe such a story? Now remember, we've gotten used to the fact that Jesus beat death. We've had a couple thousand years to do that. We, have, we look at it in a very different way. They had no such concept. No one in the history of humanity had ever risen from the dead to live forever. There's some that Jesus had risen, and there's some in the Old Testament, very unique spots where people had come to life after being dead. But no one had ever risen from the dead permanently and victoriously. They had no concept of that. So I think being prepared with the Old Testament miracles, it wasn't out of the question that someone could rise from the dead for them. This was something that every Jew believed. That is a possibility. They'd seen it, historically it had happened. But the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead, there just was no proof, and they just weren't going to open their heart up for another expectation to be dashed. They had trusted that he would be Messiah. They're going to be pretty slow to trust now that he might be alive. So despite the angelic reports, they just don't get it. And having exposed their thinking, Jesus is now ready to teach again. And how gracious that is. Isn't it gracious that he didn't go, boo, and, and, and reveal himself to them. You could have scared them half to death. I mean, isn't it, isn't it gracious that he didn't show off his resurrection powers 
and, you know, walk right through them or something like that. He could have put his arm around them also and just very gently said, right then and there, it's me, friends, I'm alive. Don't be frightened. I beat death, and I love you. Serve me and vanish from their presence. But Jesus exercises patience here. He keeps the knowledge of who he is veiled, and he does something more important. He teaches them the Bible and opens their minds to embrace it so that they are served for life. The grounding then of their experience will not be in their experience. Jesus demonstrating some great power, scaring them half to death and then vanishing. It's not going to be them running around telling the experience. What's really at the heart of this revelation is them running around showing and declaring the truth of God's Word. He's preparing them now to ground all of their experience in the Bible in the truth of written revelation, and it's all been there all along. So he perhaps keeps right on walking, begins to deliver a lesson to his students that will put fire back in their souls forever. He teaches them a lesson they'll never forget and starts with an attention-getting rebuke. Verse 25, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I guarantee that got their attention. We know what the prophets have spoken. Messiah was supposed to rule and to reign and to be victorious. You've missed the point, says Jesus very pointedly. How foolish and slow of heart you have been in your reading of the Old Testament scriptures. He gets their attention as he accuses them of having hearts that are sluggish and imperceptive to what the Hebrew Scriptures teach. But having gained their attention, he begins to instruct at verse 26 when he says, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? These two aren't weak theologians. They don't take the rebuke and get offended and run with their scroll under their arm and go home. They say, all right, we're not reading the Scriptures wisely. Fill us in. Teach us, instruct us. They listen as he does so. The Hebrew Bible, Jesus begins to teach them, over and over again instructed you that Messiah must hear this. He must first suffer. Messiah has to first suffer. You missed that point. You jumped right away very quickly to the idea that Messiah must reign. You tuned out the prophecies to his suffering and shame as Messiah and to the references of his resurrection. Read your Bible. Do not the prophets foretell of the suffering Messiah? When Jesus lay buried, they were holed up in grief. They could well have had a lawn chair in front of the tomb and been waiting. The prophets had said this three days. It's not that long. In their Jewish way of calculation, shorter than our three days. They just need to sit there and wait for what will happen. But here they are, hold up grieving. Having secured their attention again, he now turns to the Old Testament instruction and says, and, and we read verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. A seminary education in a couple hours. You couldn't have gotten a better one. 
they already knew the original text, uh, the original language. So they had that under their belt. Now they're instructed by the master and puts it all together. Starting with Moses, who's that? Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible. That's what that means, the Pentateuch. He starts with the early chapters of the Bible, and I would almost be willing to guarantee that he starts with the early chapters of Genesis. And he explains to them who he is. The word explained is a word from which we get hermeneutics. Anybody who's been part of a Bible college training or, or seminary training, you probably have a class on hermeneutics. It's the science of interpretation. That's where we get this, that word. Jesus explains to them. He begins to lay out to them how they should interpret the Old Testament and walks them through the Scriptures, probably starting or could have started at least at Genesis 1 or 2 or certainly at 3.15, the prophecy of the representative of the serpent seed who would crush Satan in a mutual death blow. All the way back in Genesis 3, a mutual death blow. He will crush, he, he will bite your heel and crush your heel. The prophecies begin there. Perhaps he walked his way through in Moses the wilderness wanderings and spoke of himself, the antitype who fulfills the rock that gave water. Or the antitype who fulfills the bread that fell from heaven. Or the antitype that fulfills the bronze serpent to which you look and are saved. Jesus is teaching them, I'm in all of that. That's pointing to me. He perhaps turned to Deuteronomy 18.15 in their minds as they're walking along and reminded them of the prophet that was to come. Moses prophesied. He might have looked at Isaiah 35 where the blind see and the lame walk that yes, the miracles of Jesus were an attestation to the fact that He was Messiah. He may well have turned to Psalm 10 that we read earlier today, a psalm that is used so repeatedly in the New Testament as the connection between the Old Testament prophets and Jesus is made. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's a victorious reigning king. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, even though he comes from the line of Judah. How is this possible? Undoubtedly, the section in Hebrews that refers to Jesus as the priest according to the order of Melchizedek is part of this discussion. That there's a new kind of priesthood that is prophesied in the Old Testament over the centuries. And there was one who would be the great high priest. It is Messiah. He may have turned to Psalm 22 and spoken of, of the forsaking of God. Forsaking his king, and speaking of the cross, could he have read Isaiah 53? Less is said about Isaiah 53, and I, my conclusion is the only reason is it's so patently obvious. You don't have to really say a whole lot about it. Psalm 110 takes some, I mean, you've got to put on the mental thinking cap and really start working through Psalm 110. That's not a given. It's not an easy thing. You give Isaiah 53 to a schooled seven-year-old, and they know what it's talking about. It's so plain. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded for our salvation. The Father crushed Him. God crushes the Son, bringing all of this out of the Old Testament. And we have no time to go further and continue what this lesson may have been, but we unpack it all the time as we study Scripture. 
Unlike many cults, let's just say this, unlike many cults, Christianity did not start with a brand new book. We must grasp that truth. There are many cults that say, yes, we believe the Bible, but then we got this new revelation, this new book, and you need to read this new book, buy this new book, and hear this new book. There's this new word. Nothing wrong with a new word from God inherently, but new Christianity is not that kind of a faith. It's not a cult that started with a new book. It is a turn in salvation history that repeatedly demonstrated that it came out of the well of the Old Testament. That this is what the Old Testament prophet had prophesied. It's not a new book. It's an old book. The new book that's written is connecting to the old book, the Old Testament. The Old Testament foretold of Christ's birth and of His ministry and of His death and of His resurrection. When the Gospel writers say that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, they point back hundreds of years and say that's where He was supposed to be born. The prophets told us He would be. When they say that He is a son of David, the prophets told us this. And on and on it goes. He will raise the dead. He will give sight to the blind. He will make the lame to leap. That's Messiah. The prophets had prepared us for Jesus. Same with his death and his resurrection. So Jesus says to these two, it's all been there in the Hebrew Scriptures for a very long time. You've been missing the point. And we can say, and I hope that you will grasp this truth, I'd like to close later with a point on this, but just to grasp it here and begin to turn it over in our minds. The Old Testament is Christ-centered. The Old Testament points us to Jesus Christ. That is the agenda of the Old Testament. Jesus is the agenda all the way through. He's the agenda from the very beginning, and He's the agenda to the very end, and He will be the center of all things forever and ever. Well, the connection continues. But now we're talking about a logistical issue. Verse 28, they approached the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther. I think the NIV is helping us out a little bit here with the acted, but that's the point. He, is, he is, knows where he's going, but they don't. So verse 29, they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. Now Jesus begins to get dramatic. The teaching has been done on this journey, and he wants to make it all settle more. And it'd be a wonderful thing to sit down with Jesus and say, why'd you wait that long? Why did you go there to eat? Why did you do what you did in this whole thing? He goes with them into their home. We don't know who this is. It's if it's a man and a wife, I'm not convinced by that, though there are some who would argue that from John. I don't think that's the case, but it might be. It doesn't matter. They go into this house and they sit down. They invite Jesus in. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Jesus reclining at the table, customary in that day for the host to break the bread and pass it around as a symbol of fellowship and friendship. For reasons unknown, perhaps Jesus had so distinguished himself as the rabbi in the situation that he broke the bread, or maybe they asked him to. 
as a symbolic host, an honored guest. He breaks the bread, and it's something in doing that that they recognize. I think God just probably opens their eyes to see in this moment, this is Jesus. And all that needs to be done is done, and Jesus is removed from their presence. In his resurrection body, he is able to disappear, and he does that. And they asked each other in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Only the teacher could do that. Our hearts were burning in us. And I, if, if I'm right to add the word again, they had heard the teachings of Jesus and their hearts burned within them again, perhaps, if they had heard him before. But the teacher was at it again. He was unveiling Scripture and its meaning to them, and their hearts burned with excitement and with knowledge, with light. He had done what he alone could do. Jesus had opened the Bible to their understanding in such a way that their hearts were set on fire by the truth. Has he opened your eyes that way? I know that experience. And it's one of the greatest experiences a human being can have. To have a sense that God is teaching you his word, showing you the truth, and your heart burns within you because you know you're embracing something that's bigger than this world. He opened their eyes to the truth of His Word. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead simply because of the factual evidence. I don't believe that He rose from the dead because I just want to believe it, blindly trusting whatever my heart wants to believe. I believe that Jesus Christ as God-man came to this earth, that He was born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, of the line of King David to die in my place in order to wash away my sins, that he rose literally from the grave in defeat of death and sin and hell. I believe that because God has graciously opened my eyes to that truth. It's real, it's demonstrable, but I would reject it on my own. My heart burns with passion when I see in Scripture a glorious God and a glorious salvation because that truth has been witnessed to my soul by the Holy Spirit of God. I have nothing in which to boast. I have everything with which to magnify the goodness and the splendor of Almighty God. So these newly challenged disciples are filled with this renewed vigor. And they get up, verse 33, and they return at once to Jerusalem. That makes no sense at all. This is in our day. Remember that. There's no street lights. You don't get in a car and turn on the headlights. The only thing you've got to go by is stars and moon if they happen to be effective that night. And you go into the treachery of the night. There are thieves along the way. There are wolves that can attack it's late at night, but their hearts are burning, and it fuels their burning feet, and they very quickly make their way back to Jerusalem. They had news that could not wait until morning. Jesus was alive. They'd seen him. 
The women had attested to the testimony of the angels, but they'd seen him. And remember where they're coming from, they don't know that anyone else has. And so they hustle back to let the disciples know as quickly as they can. They had seen him. He had put fire in their hearts again, opening their eyes to see the truth of the Scripture. And so transformed were these two disciples, they hurried in the darkness back to the city where death had so recently roared for them to leave. These disciples were done running from death. There is a dramatic and effective testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and his life in your Old Testament scriptures. Contemporary New Testament Christian, I plead with you, know your Old Testament. I know it's harder to read. I know that it's filled with more confusing passages of scripture. I know it's a tougher slog. Know your Old Testament. It is the Old Testament of the early church. And there are traditions of faith and Christian believers who so overemphasize the New Testament, if that's a possibility, that they begin to reread the Old Testament from a wrong perspective and fail to really understand what it is saying because they spend all of their time in the New Testament. We need to spend as much time as they do in the New Testament if we can. But don't pack up your Old Testament and put it away. It is the witness to Jesus Christ. The prophets are telling a story. The Scripture is written to point to Jesus Christ. We can't put it away. We need to read it. We need to know it. We need to understand how it points to Christ. We need to emphasize. We need to celebrate the continuity of the two testaments. There are differences on either side of the cross for God's people. But there are many continuities. There are many connections between the two. It is one book. The Old Testament is a Christ-centered document. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus shows up noticeably on every page. We don't want to uh, follow the error that some in the early church made of saying that the Old Testament is a mysterious and secretive New Testament. And so you figure things out and, and, and everything's pointing to Christ and nothing's really literal, nothing really happened as it's said. It's just all a, a, a veiled reference to Jesus. No, it's not. Jesus isn't in every single line and every single page, at least noticeably. But he's there in the whole storyline. He's there at the center of it all. The Bible, the Old Testament, is Christocentric. There is a major and important emphasis then on the birth and the lineage of Messiah. There is a major emphasis on the suffering of Messiah and even some reference to the risen Messiah. Although they did not fully understand all of their prophecies, the Old Testament prophets bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That means those who would ever preach God's Word, that means those of you who are reading God's Word, if we read the Old Testament week after week after week and never see Jesus, we may not be reading it properly. We need to step back and see the whole picture. We need to realize where the Old Testament is pointing. We need to realize, young people, will you get this as you leave our church? Don't forget this. The Old Testament is Christ-centered. It's a document about Jesus. It is not 
in itself the document of the Jewish faith that we leave off as distinctive from Christianity. There are Jews who would like to say that, who would adamantly insist upon that point. There are Christians who are beginning to say that these days. They are writing off the Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures that have nothing to do with us, and in fact there is a legitimate faith in the Hebrew faith all by itself, the Jewish faith all by itself, that can miss Jesus altogether, and that's just fine. Because it was God's Word, and it is their Bible, and it's not our Bible, but we'll respect them for having their Bible and finding their way to God, and we will find our way to God in the New Testament. It's hogwash, if I can use a very nice word. The only way you can say something that, like that is because you have an agenda. And your agenda has a lot more to do with pluralism than it does with biblical revelation. The Old Testament is a testament to Jesus Christ. We have no Jesus apart from that preparation and that guidance. So read it, know it, realize that the Bible is a whole. It is, there's a reason we don't bring our Bibles in two volumes. We bring it with one cover. That's the way it ought to be. Unless it's in the original language. I suppose there's a couple of those, but we might have two volumes that way. That's okay. We have one Bible because it's all one. There is an overarching divine plan to conquer sin and death. God is the author of that message. And there is hope in the Old Testament and in the resurrection of Jesus. There is hope. There is hope for victory over death. I read recently the account of the uh, Gettysburg, Battle of Gettysburg, and that last major charge referred to as Pickett's Charge. Countless numbers of men going across a mile-wide stretch and trying to get across that stretch of land while shells rain down on them and bullets fly through the air, so many fusing sometimes in midair. It was, a, it was a march into the teeth of death. And the story is told that when it finally became obvious that it would not work, that the few soldiers who remained came back across the field and, and were running into a woods, running for the safety of that woods. And as they got to the woods, the general whose fault it was, if we have to pin the blame, was Robert E. Lee. He took his hat off on his horse and rode back and forth along that line of trees so that his men would see him. That he, they would know that he was taking the responsibility for this loss. And it was said that when many of them saw him, they stopped running. So revered was that man that they stopped running from death. Bullets flying at their back, shells raining down on them, they stopped to see him. It's an emotional story along a number of lines, but for me, not because of the Civil War or Robert E. Lee. These disciples had not seen a fallen general. They had seen the risen Christ. And they would never again run from death. 
This was no defeated general. This was the conqueror of death and sin. And they looked at him as he disappeared from their presence, and they ran back to Jerusalem where death had reigned so very shortly, so so recently. And they would soon be equipped by the Spirit of God to rise up in joy and to assault the gates of hell and death itself. And so we, as the followers of Jesus, can say with them, Roar on, death! We are no longer afraid, because Jesus is alive. Forgiveness of sin has been won by the work of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ's finished work, we will one day rise from the dead as He did. Death, the pain of death's scorpion sting has been removed. It is a toothless enemy as it roars at us, and it does roar. But the sting has been removed. We gather to announce the resurrection of Jesus Christ because in that victory we have been saved for eternity and we have entered into the realm of eternal life. No more fear in death. Did you hear that phrase as we sung it today? No fear of death. That doesn't mean that there's no human fear on a human level, a mystery there a concern of entering into something we've never experienced before, but it means that we go to bed at night in peace because we know that the cause of death has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. Sin is the cause. Death is the the result of sin. Sin is its root and its cause. And Jesus came and uprooted sin. He dealt with the penalty, bearing that penalty, and providing saving life to his people. We gather to announce the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of his victory over death and sin. And that is why we gather on this day and we sing. We rejoice. We lift our voices in the victory of resurrection power. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we give you thanks. We, we hardly know how to. Our words fall so short and the passions of our heart as they rise to you in prayer, Father, receive them and know that we will have to depend on the Spirit's words and groans to convey to you the thanks of our heart, the wonder of your resurrection power, and the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, with the weakness of our prayers, we seek with all of our heart to convey our worship, our praise, our glory, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How we give you thanks. How we praise you in his name. If there is, Father, among us one or several who have not come yet to the place of saving faith, I pray that you will draw them to yourself. I pray that you bring salvation and dawn today 
in the soul of one who's separated from you. I thank you, God, for those of us who have been enlightened. We haven't lived any better lives in our previous days than any sinner. We come not on the merits of our goodness, but we come on the merits of what Jesus has performed in our behalf. Father, thank you. We rejoice together today and pray that you will receive our songs and our prayers and our worship from hearts that are filled with thanksgiving. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.